If you remember back in 2008, Hurricane Ike made landfall in Texas. You remember Hurricane Ike? It was a big storm. Category 4 storm. The Weather Service was tracking the storm. Before it made landfall, it predicted that it would make landfall on the island city of Galveston, Texas, and that's precisely what happened. The eye of the hurricane passed over the east end of Galveston, Texas at 2 a.m. September 13th. The problem was, uh, in Galveston anyway, that so many people ignored the evacuation orders. The entire island of Galveston was under uh, mandatory evacuation orders as Hurricane Ike was approaching. Uh, but the day before the storm hit, they predicted that 25% of the population was still in town. Really, it's hard to understand why people would want to stay uh, in Galveston, especially when a storm like Ike is going to hit. Uh, but thousands and thousands did precisely that. And uh, think about this. In the early 1900s, another storm hit Galveston, Texas. I wasn't around for that. A couple of you might have been. I don't know. So this storm hit Galveston, Texas in the early 1900s. That storm didn't have a name. But when the storm hit, the entire island was underwater. In some places, up to eight feet underwater, but the entire island was submerged under the storm surge. And since that time, a, a large seawall had been installed. So maybe some of the re residents of Galveston, Texas thought, well, we've got this fancy seawall now. That provides some safety. Another thing that's kind of funny about the Hurricane Ike, the evacuation order was particularly strong-worded order from the National Weather Service. Basically, it said this. If you live in a single-family home... That is not a high-rise. If you live in a single-family home on Galveston and you stay for the storm, you will certainly die. That was, the, that was the warning. So a bunch of people stayed, nonetheless. 28 people died in Galveston when the storm came on shore. Trying to figure out, aren't you? I mean, I do. Why in the world would they stay? Maybe, I mean, millions of people were evacuating the area uh, from Hurricane Ike, so maybe it was the thought of... of enduring the long backup traffic lines. Maybe it was the idea of uh, having to be in temporary housing for an extended period of time. Um, for whatever reason, though, they believed they had a need, and their need was to stay. They had a greater need to stay in their home than there was a need to uh, depart from the hurricane. Um, I know what I need, somebody might say, I need to stay and protect my property. The evacuation order is a bunch of malarkey. I'm sure they said something like that, or whatever they say in Texas instead of malarkey. Probably can't say it from the platform. <laughs> yes, but this is how we evaluate our needs. This is how we evaluate what we need. In this case, some people decided they needed to stay in their home, even though that was against better judgment, because they, th they thought their need to stay home was greater than their need uh, to depart. But well, how we decide what we need... Uh, will depend on our priorities, it's going to depend on our values, and, uh, and that's how we decide what we're going to do. We know what we need, and even if somebody tells us what they think that we need. So you need to evacuate Galveston, and we may say, I need to stay. I'm going to make that decision based on my values. So our perceived things we need is always in tension with what's going on in the world around us. But not only that, what we, what we believe we need is also in tension with what we want. So not only do our values and priorities make our perceived needs uh, in tension, uh, it also we have tension when we look at what we want and what we need. Uh, here's a, another silly illustration. You need to save up for the future, perhaps for retirement, perhaps to have an emergency fund. This is a good idea. You need to do this. And you say, well, no, I don't. 
I need a car. And I need a new car because that fresh new car smell is a need. It actually provides energy in my soul, whatever it might be. And so now we know, I know what I need. I need to save up for my future, an emergency fund, medical expenses, or perhaps retirement. But I need a new car. And so my want is now in tension with, with that which is really a need. So what we need to understand about this is simple. You may be wondering where you're going. You know, that makes two of us. We can know what we need. We can state it. Maybe we can even write it out. I need to save up for retirement. I need to evacuate Galveston. But what we actually believe we need will be revealed by how we choose to act. So you say, should you evacuate Galveston? Yeah, I should. I need to do that. Are you going to? No. Then you don't think you should. The choices we make come from not merely our intellectual understanding of truth. They come from our values and priorities sunk deep within our heart. The people of Galveston needed to be safe, but at the same time, they felt the need to stay home. So many of them stayed home. We know we need to plan for the future, but at the same time, oftentimes we make decisions that aren't for our future but are short-sighted. Why am I saying all this? Because this is how we need, we need to understand how this affects our relationship with God. We can understand all kinds of things about what we need to know about God and what our life with God ought to be look like. Look like. We can read from the Bible what a relationship with God needs to look like. We can go to a Sunday school class. We can go to a conference. We can listen to sermons online. We can podcast them. We can gain all kinds of information, can't we? I mean, in the United States today as Christians, we have a... a a big pile is the word that came to mind of riches when it comes to knowing God. I mean, we can literally go online and Google any kind of resource. You have a question about a passage of Scripture, you can look it up on commentaries online. You can listen to a sermon. You can read a book about it. We have tons of information that we can have. In fact, if I asked you right now, what do you need to have a healthy and powerful and compelling relationship with God, most of you could probably make a really good list of things you need. You can say, well, I know exactly what I need, and you can write it out. What we're going to discover today in Ephesians chapter 1 is knowing what we need and being able to write out, here's everything a, a, good, a, a, a person who's following Christ needs to do, and having it settle into our hearts and transform how we see the world around us. That's a whole other thing. That's a whole other thing. It's one thing to be able to say, here's what all the right answers are. Here's how, what it looks like to walk with Christ. It's another thing to have it in our hearts, to have it change how we look at the world around us. So what I want us to look at just for a few minutes here this morning is our great need. What is our great need? And if we understand what our need is, how can we allow it to change us to walk in the footsteps of Christ? So a couple of things here. Read with me again verses 15 and 16 of Ephesians chapter 1. Here's what Paul says. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. So when it comes to our great need, there's really two things, and here's the first thing I want you to think about, is we have a great need to be received by others in Christ. We have a great need to be received by others in Christ. Notice what Paul says when he thinks of them. He says, I have heard of your what? Your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints. Paul has heard about the believers in Ephesus, and what he has heard from them is they believe in Christ and they love all the saints. 
And when he has heard about their, their faith in Christ and their love for one another, his expression about that is an expression of gratitude. He says, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. His heart is filled with gratitude when he hears about the faith of the Ephesian believers. His heart is filled with thankfulness. And in fact, it says, whenever I'm praying for you, I'm thanking God for you. We have to understand the Apostle Paul here, this isn't some spiritual platitude that is like the bottom of a Hallmark card. Thankful for you. You know, certainly we might mean it and we intend to mean it. And Paul here meant it. When he heard of their faith in Christ, when he heard of their love for one another and all the saints, his heart, he's like, oh, I'm so thankful for that. God, thank you so much for the work you're doing in the believers in Ephesus. Look with me back at verses 13 and 14 of chapter 1. Just a couple of verses before that. I'm going to read Ephesians 1, 13 and 14. In him you also, when you heard the word of the truth of the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. So what Paul is saying is, you heard the gospel, and you believed it. You heard the gospel. The gospel tell, told you you were dead in your trespasses and sins, and the way to life in Christ was faith in Christ alone for dying on the cross. And they believed it. And he says at the moment of their belief, the Holy Spirit sealed them, guaranteeing that one day they would stand in the presence of God with Christ, and they would be co-heirs of the kingdom of God with Christ himself. And, God said, and Paul says, I should say, and God did all of this for his glory. He's glorified to bring salvation to us through the gospel of Jesus Christ. He appreciated most about these individuals that they trusted and loved Jesus and one another. When he thought of them, he said, man, it's so cool that you love Jesus. And you love Jesus so much, you even love that Yahoo who sits next to you. It's unbelievable. What do we normally appreciate about people? I think it's a fair question when reading this passage because I read him saying this, I really appreciate your faith and your love for one another. But what do we normally appreciate about people most profoundly? We might appreciate that somebody has found Christ. You know, that guy has found Christ. And it's not doing a lot of good. But you know, I'm grateful he found Christ. But I don't know if it's sticking. Because his life is a train wreck. I'd really appreciate if his finding Christ would make him a little better, actually. Kind of how I'd like it. Or we appreciate uh, another end of the spectrum when it comes to appreciating Christ. And others say, boy, I really appreciate her faith in Christ. But you know, it's not really the best thing she's got going. Very successful, very smart, well-known, well-liked in her field. In fact, Christ is pretty lucky to have her on his team. So I'm really grateful that she has found Christ, but honestly, that, I don't even know if that cracks the top 10 things of things she's got going for her. So I'm, I'm glad she's found Christ, but that's, I mean. So when we, when we appreciate Christ in people, sometimes we appreciate the fact, fact that Christ would save someone like that. Well, thank you, Christ. Only you alone would save someone like that. I know you would never say it out loud, and neither would I, except as an example. Okay, I've said it out loud a few times. Or we do, I mean, don't we think, man, they found Christ, but man, so, well, I'm so glad they found Christ. Sometimes we think this way about celebrities. 
a famous athlete will find Christ. Right? Oh, thank the Lord, the kingdom of God is well advanced because a guy who can catch a football on Sunday has found Jesus. And I shouldn't be uh, silly about it, but that's not the best thing the kingdom of God has for it. The best thing the kingdom of God has for it is Jesus. And Paul was saying, I appreciate you primarily because you have trusted Christ in your trespasses and sins. I appreciate the fact that you are pouring out your love for one another. Let me put it this way. Paul is so accustomed to what Jesus is like through his word and through prayer and through his journey with Christ. He was so accustomed to what Jesus looked like and what he talked like and, and what he was like in the room that when he saw Jesus in somebody else, he got excited. He said, I know that guy. That's Jesus, and he's in you. And it jazzed him up. He was thrilled by it to see Christ working in another believer. He was so familiar with the work of Christ and what the grace of Christ sounded like and what the mercy of Christ looked like and what the love of Christ looked like that when he saw somebody else exuding the quality of Christ, he got excited. He said, oh, I'm so thankful for that. Jesus has showed up again in the life of another believer. And it moved him and it motivated him. Now, I should say this just as a way of qualifying. It doesn't mean that every Christian is the same. Thank the Lord. But Jesus is working in everyone who claims the name of Christ by faith. Each one of us ought to take comfort in knowing that God is lifted up. God is glorified by having Christ show up in our lives. To have, and having Jesus show up in how we uh, interact with the world and the people around us. Look at verse 12, or I should say 11 and 12 of Ephesians 1. In him we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. So God's glory is lifted up. He is given praise when Christ works through each one of us in his particular way. In fact, I would suggest this from the Apostle Paul's example in his word here. Each one of us should, in fact, take great joy and great delight in seeing and knowing about the work of Christ being worked out in each one of us as individuals. Paul took great delight and great joy in seeing his Savior, his hero Christ, working himself out in the lives of other believers. Christ being worked out in you is a unique work of God in you, and Christ being worked out in the person next to you is a unique work of God in them. But each work of Christ in each individual and the unique ways that that shows up gives God his praise, gives God his glory, and that brought the Apostle Paul great joy and great gratitude. The fact is here, we should have joy. One of the places we should derive great joy in our hearts and lives is seeing Christ worked out in the lives of the people around us. One of the places we should take great joy is seeing Christ show up in the lives of the people around us. I think the challenge here as we think about this passage before we move on to the rest of the passage is this. I don't know what uh, brings you joy about the Christians that you know in your life, uh, either in this church, in your small group, in your home group, or even in your home. I don't know what brings you joy about them walking with Christ, but Paul's challenge to us here is, is in being like Christ is to derive joy in seeing Christ in them. 
is when we see Christ working himself out in the hearts and lives of other people, as we mature and grow up in our faith, it should come to the point where nothing would bring us greater joy than seeing Jesus show up in somebody else. So here's a question I'm going to pose as a way of moving on to the rest of this passage where we're going to spend the balance of our time. If I have joy in Christ in you, let's just say hypothetically, if I receive joy because I see Christ formed in you, what is, what is it that I can do that you might have more of Christ formed in you? This isn't a hard thing to understand when you're at the restaurant and you order a good meal, you go back and order it again, right? No, none of you? Okay, then the illustration's bombing. I don't know what it is you like, but say, you know, order a good meal. Say, I'm going to come back and get some more of this. I'm going to be back at this spot. I'm going to order this again. So the same thing here. If we, if we discover that Christ being formed in others brings us joy, then you should say, you know what? I think I want some more of that. How could I have more joy by Christ being formed in you more? So what is the one thing that I could do to enhance my joy in the Lord by seeing Christ formed in you more? What is the one thing that I could do that could make you more like Jesus? What is the one thing I could do that could fill my life with gratitude and joy that you might be more like Christ? I can see, man, they're more like Jesus now than they ever were before, and that makes me so happy and thankful. What's the one thing I could do? Why well, think making a list of rules? That's a lie. That's not, that was wrong. Moving on. Okay. What is the one thing I could do? Number 16 and 19, the second thing we need is to be prayed for by others in Christ. First thing we need, as we said, is to be received by others in Christ, that you and I might be received from one another, not because of what we bring to the table, but because of what Christ brings to the table. And to the degree that we want Christ formed in each other more so, that our joy and thankfulness might increase, the single best and most important thing we can do for each other is to pray for one another in Christ. Let me read again verses 16 through 19. I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation, excuse me, of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, that are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the works of his great might." He says this, I want to pray for three things for you. There's three things in here that he says, I want to pray for you that Christ might be formed in you in these ways. Look at verse 16 or 17. He prays this, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ may give you the spirit of wisdom and the knowledge of him. He says, I want you to know Christ. He says, I, because of my gratitude for you, because of the joy that my heart is filled up with, I'm going to pray for you. I'm going to pray that you would know Christ. And the only way for you to know Christ is for the Holy Spirit himself to give you wisdom that you might know him. So I pray that you might know Christ. And know here is not merely uh, writing a list of attributes about Jesus. 
He's saying, I want you to know when someone talks, if they sound the way Jesus would talk, I want you to know what his voice is like and what his mannerism is like, what his grace is like and his mercy and his love. He says these three things that he wants us to know of Christ. He wants us to know our hope in him, our inheritance, and his power. You see that in verse 18? He says this, having the eyes of our heart enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. That's the first thing. The second thing, that uh, you might know the riches of his glorious inheritance. That's the end of verse 18 and verse 19, that we might know the immeasurable greatness of his power. So Paul says this, your great need is that I would pray for you that you might know Christ, that you might know the hope you have in him, that you might know your inheritance that you have in him, and that you might know the power of Christ in you. Why does Paul pray this? It's a, it's a very strange prayer to pray for Christians. Well, they're Christians. Shouldn't they already know their hope and all that? Remember back to verses 3 through 14, that great eulogy that Paul has written in verses 3 through 14. He extols the, the glory of Christ, the power of Christ, the, inter, the inheritance we have in Christ, the, the hope we have that he has come to redeem sinners. And so if it's merely knowing information, the Ephesian believers could say, listen, we have the information, Paul. And Paul's not wanting them to merely have the information about Christ. He wants the truth of what Christ has done to settle into their hearts that it changes everything about their view of the world around them and everything about their view of their relationships around them. He says, I don't want you to merely have information about Jesus. I want you to know him in your soul. I want to settle into your bones what Jesus is like. How is that even possible? I mean, I could say something. Jesus is gracious. Everybody agree? Half the room agrees. Okay, that's good. Start. So what's that like? See, that's a little bit trickier question, isn't it? Jesus is gracious. Well, yeah, we can put that on a card, post-it note, hang it in our theology notebook or whatever. Jesus is gracious. He's full of grace and truth. And so what's, what's it like? What, what is his grace like? I don't know. You ever... I hate to ask. I don't want to make you uncomfortable. You ever sinned really bad? No, none of us? And yet still rested in the fact that he loves you? I mean, you don't, you don't know what grace is until you've had it poured out on you. You say, God, God, you don't understand. I really blew it. And he goes, oh, no, I understand. In fact, I understand it more than you do. Here's a bucket of Grace. Well, I only sinned a thimble. First of all, you sinned a lot more than a thimble. But secondly, here's a bucket. See, that's different than just saying God is, Jesus is gracious. It's a whole other thing when we had to have the grace poured out on us. In fact, what Paul is saying, to really know Christ, to really know the hope we have in him, the inheritance we have in him, and the power we have in him, he says this, it takes the work of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit together to reveal to our hearts and minds that we might know him. They might open the eyes of our hearts. They might open up our hearts and we would say, oh, I see what's going on here. Oh, this is unbelievable. It takes the work of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit all together to reveal our, to, the, to the eyes of our heart that our spiritual eyes might be open that we could say, holy cow, he is 
full of grace. He is full of love. He is full of mercy. So let me put it this way. If you're going to get anywhere in your walk with Christ, it's going to take a supernatural work of God himself to open up the eyes of your hearts that you might see what he's up to. Some of you are thinking, what are the 10 steps to opening up the eyes of my heart? I need 10 steps to opening up the eyes of my heart. One step. The power of God through the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit opens up the eyes of your heart just because he feels like it and it's a miracle. You say, well, how do I do that? Anybody ever felt helpless before? What do you do when you feel helpless? Well, I hope pray is in the top 10. See, when there's something that must happen that we have no control over, we, this is normal in our life. You've prayed these prayers. I prayed, prayed it once as the truck I was driving was doing a, one of these things. Apparently, the wheels are supposed to stay on the asphalt. Whatever. You do it your way. I'll do it mine. A lot of praying went on in that moment. The, pray shi- the prayer shifted as it was rolling. First, it was, God, help me live. And then I lived. Okay, thank you. And then it was, God, help me not get a ticket. I didn't get a ticket. I got a lecture. And then it was what? Well, it was a work truck. God, help me not to be fired. I mean, so the prayers, uh, they just uh, shifted over time. So this, uh, when, God, I'm helpless. I don't know what to do. Show up here. Well, what Paul has just made known to us, the most significant movements for us to be like Jesus are not in our control. It requires the supernatural work of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit to open up the eyes of our heart that we might say, oh, my lands, this is unbelievable. So if you can't do it, you can't, you can't uh, read your Bible into it, you can't be good enough to do it, what do you need to do? You need to pray for it. In fact, what does Paul say here? I pray that you might know him. Why does Paul do this? Because he knows that the most important thing spiritually needs to happen in their heart is God invading their hearts. And he says, I'm going to pray for that because I can't think of anything more important for you than that your eyes might be open to see the bountiful grace of Christ. So question for you. Who's praying that for you? I mean, all of us, I would guess, have some sort of spiritual habits. You probably have some spiritual habits. Even the most undisciplined of us have spiritual habits. Maybe you bow your head in the restaurant. Maybe you read your Bible in the morning. Maybe you pray in the evening. Maybe you tip extra big at the coffee drive through place. These are all ways in which generosity, you know, uh, knowing God's word, prayer, these are all things that we can do, right? But here's a spiritual habit we have no control over. Somebody else needs to pray that I find Christ more today. So the question is, who's praying that for you? Who are you praying that for? I'm certain you've prayed for a lot of people this week, haven't you? Have we prayed that the eyes of their heart might be open, that they might find Christ more gracious? This supernatural eyes opening, seeing the power of Christ, seeing the grace of Christ, understanding the hope I have in Christ. Just a quick question, just think, evaluate in your own mind. What could possibly be a better thing for someone else to receive? Is there something that you can think of that is a greater need to pray for than that the individuals you know in your life might see Christ and have more hope 
that they might see Christ and have more strength in the inheritance that they have in him, that they might have more uh, strength in the hope we have in Christ. Is there something better to pray for? Having the eyes of our hearts enlightened that we may know what is the hope to which we have been called. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe. These aren't merely something we need to list out on a sheet of paper. These are things that will give us fuel to live our life in Christ tomorrow. And the only way to have them is if we're engaged with one another in prayer for one another in these things. I might put it this way. The single most important work you do to disciple others is to pray that they might see Christ with their eyes opened. The single most important thing you might do to help someone, other, someone else know Christ more fully is to pray that they might see the hope in Christ more clearly. Is to pray that they might rest in their inheritance in Christ more safely. Is to pray that they might experience the power of God more significantly. Do we trust that the most important thing that I might do for the believers I know is to pray that they might know Christ this week? Is it important that we pray that somebody who doesn't have a job gets a job? Yes, we should pray for that. Is it important to pray for those who are sick that they might find healing? Yes, we should pray for that. Is it important to pray that loved ones might be reunited after a time of brokenness and relationship? Yeah, we should pray for that. Should we pray for our country and the leaders of our country? Absolutely. The Bible tells us we should. Should we pray that each one of us might see our hope in Christ more fully this week? Do you think those who are sick can rest in Christ while sick more so if they experience the grace of Christ in it? I think so. I would pray and hope for their healing. But let's be honest, God doesn't heal everybody. And if somebody's going to step from this world into the next one, I hope they do so filled with the grace of Christ. And I, I would pray that everyone who wants a job is able to find a job. And that uh, anyone who is in financial difficulty would be able to find financial freedom. But to the degree that God says, no, not yet, I would hope in the midst of the challenge they would find the grace of Christ. Wouldn't we hope for that? Why don't we pray for it? We must pray for it. It's our great need is to be prayed for by others as we receive one another in Christ. We have to trust that the real work of discipling others begins with our prayer that they might know Christ and their eyes might be opened. We also need to trust that the real thing you need in your spiritual life right now is others praying for you that you might know Christ and His grace and His hope and His power. I mean, you ask that, yourself that question, I could just give you the answer, but be honest in your own heart. What does your, your spiritual life really need right now? Most people are going to answer one of these uh, three things. You say, well, I really need to stop that one sin that's really got me bad. It's, ugh, it's bad. Can't seem to shake it. If I could stop that, if I could stop that, everything would be fine with Christ. Listen, it's not a big deal. Let me just confess what it is. When it's the coupon person in line at the grocery store, I just lose it. You know, I just really, can you at least have them in order of the items on the belt? 
No? Oh, you're going to wait till the whole transaction is done. And then, oh, you know what? I've got this giant stack of coupons. I totally forgot this massive water. See, I feel better confessing it. If, if, if you're the coupon person, that's fine. It's fine. There's grace for people. It's coupons too. Um, so we say, you know what? I could really find Christ if I could just get over the sin. Or you know what? I would really know Christ more if I could read and understand his Bible more. Or you know what? I would, I would really know Christ more if I could you know, share my faith at work and I'm too scared to. Now, I hope you hear what I'm saying. I'm not, should we not do these things? I mean, the coupon thing, yeah, we should be in the appropriate line. But am I saying you shouldn't read your Bible? Should you not pray? Should you not? No, I'm not saying those things. But what we've done is we've come up with a bunch of things that say, here's what I must do to know Christ. And Paul says, here's what Christ must do for you to know him. Pray that he would do it. If your heart was filled with the hope that you have in Christ, do you think you'd have as much problems sharing your faith? Probably not. You would still have problems. But when our, hope is, when our heart is filled with Christ, we're moved to share our faith. Trust that the real thing your spiritual life needs right now is not 10 steps, not 10 habits. You might need those things, but the real thing you need right now is for other people you know to pray that the spiritual eyes of your heart would be opened, that you'd say, oh, I have hope. I have a future. I have power. I see it now. It only comes through prayer. It only comes from God himself working in our lives. All right, I just, uh, by way of concluding this, a couple of things here. I want to be clear about a couple of things. Uh, God, in fact, does want to provide for us exactly what we need. He, in fact, wants us to have his the things we need most. He, he wants to give us our greatest needs. The interesting thing that we discover from this passage today is the means by which he is going to give us our greatest need is through the prayer of others. Through the relationships we have with one another. You have a great need to know of Christ and his hope more fully and more greatly and the means by which God is going to give that to you is through relationships with people you have around you who will pray for you. The difficulty we're going to have to overcome if we want to experience and know Christ more fully is we need to overcome our independence from one another. We're kind of raised up to stand on our own two feet, just me and God with his help. But we can see through Paul's passions in Ephesians 1, 16 through 19 that we need to see Christ in one another. We need to pray desperately for one another that each of us would have the eyes of our heart opened so we could see the reality of what Jesus has done for us. This is our great need. It requires relationship with one another. There's lots of other things we could possibly need, but there isn't anything we need more. There's anything we need more than having the, the work of Christ settled into our hearts that we might know it. That no matter what tomorrow holds, we can stand and say, I have hope in Christ. So what should we do with that? I have a couple of ideas here, if you don't mind. The first thing we need to do is think about what it means to receive one another in Christ. That we need to see Christ in one another. In fact, we should be looking for Jesus in each other. We might imagine 
what it might look like for Christ to work in the life of someone else. And we might imagine and think that the whole point of knowing Jesus is that they might become a better them. I think of Billy. I hope there's no one here named Billy. If it's you, uh, I'm not talking about you. I'm talking about the other Billy. If there are two Billys here, it's one of you, and I'm not going to say which. You know, I always liked Billy. He was a nice guy before he found Christ, and after he found Christ, he was really nice. And before he found Christ, he had a bit of a temper. And now that he found Christ, he's still a little stubborn, but he's really toned it down quite a bit. So what we're really saying here is the best thing that Jesus could possibly do for me is make me into a much better version of who I already am. We see Billy, and he became a better Billy. It's so encouraging to see the grace of Christ in Billy becoming the best Billy he could possibly be. That, <laughs> I didn't mean to say it that way, but try saying that five times fast. That's funny. Let me say it this way. The absolute best version of you that you could possibly be is not as good as Jesus. The absolute dialed in, best version, best behaved, most disciplined person that you could possibly be doesn't hold a candle to Jesus. We see Jesus in someone when, when in spite of their brokenness, in spite of their frailty, in spite of their ongoing struggle with sin, they still have a, gratitude, a heart of gratitude and love for Christ Still have a heart that says, thank you, Jesus, for paying it all. Still have a heart that says, thank you for washing me again today, Jesus. We see Jesus in others when in the midst of their difficulty and trials, they know they don't need to be strong because Jesus is strong on their behalf. That in the midst of the suffering and the, and the dark clouds of doubt and frustration and maybe even resentment towards God in suffering, We can see Jesus in them, even in their uh, most tired days, they say, you know what, I, I trust him. I don't know what's going on. I know what it's like to trust him in the good times, or right now it's the hard times. I still trust him. He seems really far away, but I know he's not. And I still trust him. See, right then we get to see Christ in someone. We see Jesus in someone when they go and offer love and grace and forgiveness to someone else, even when they don't deserve it, because they've had so much love and grace and forgiveness given to them by Jesus. That's how we see Christ in one another. When what Christ is like comes flowing out of us, not because we've got it together. Seeing Jesus in one another is not seeing a cleaned up version of one another. It is seeing Jesus do his powerful work in the middle of our mess. Seeing Christ work in one another is right in the middle of our mess. I'll say it this way. If all we get out of following Jesus is a better behaved version of ourselves, it's not worth it. If all you get out of following Jesus is better manners, Man, there's other shows in town. Instead, we get a hero. We get a savior. He can raise the dead. He can, he can break the shackles off of our passions and appetites which seem to control us. He can give hope 
to people around us. And, and not someday only, but even right now, in the middle of our weakness and our brokenness. Man, isn't he awesome? You know, the second thing we need to think about is, is honestly, we need to be looking for Christ in one another. But we also need to be brought to a, a place of humility. We need to read this passage for what it's saying. That we know all these things about Christ and his work, and we know all these wonderful things about the work of God in our hearts, but we cannot see them. We cannot have them settle into our hearts till God does the miracle of opening our eyes to them. So here again, we, we need each other. It requires that we pray, that we seek God, that our hearts might be open to the work of Christ for us, that our hearts might be open to the truth of the power of gospel for us. We have a lot of things we need to pray for, but there's nothing we need to pray for more than this. We need to see the power of Christ so clearly. We need to see the power of the risen Christ so profoundly. We need to experience the forgiveness in our hearts so significantly that it reworks all of our priorities. That it changes how we go through the day. That the work of God has rewired our values and what's important to us to such a degree, it, it, it alters how we interact with every single person we know. We don't need to just pray, and we don't need to just merely pray the right thing. The biggest thing we need to understand is the truth of Christ needs to be known not merely in our heart, not merely in our minds, but also in our hearts. And the way that this happens is for us praying for one another that we might see it. We need to pray for our greatest needs. We have lots of needs. We need to pray for our greatest needs. And that is that we could see the hope, the glory, and power we have in Christ alone. kind of interesting. One of the most important things that needs to happen in your life so that you might know Jesus more fully is not something you can do at all. It's something somebody else has to do for you. It's frustrating, isn't it? What do you mean? I got to count on these yahoos? Yeah. We do. That's how, that's how the whole thing is set up. I don't know if you noticed. One of the most important and significant things that needs to happen that you might know Christ and the power of his resurrection is not something you can do at all. All you can do is sit and hope and wait that one of us might pray for you for that. That your spiritual eyes might be opened and you might see the hope you have in Christ. Sometimes every now and then, I don't know if this is true for you, you're going to hear a message or a sermon, and like it or not, you secretly hope that somebody else will hear it. You ever done that? Really hope they get the point of that. Boy, that is just for them. And then you say, send a very nice, hey, this, this sermon was really encouraging to me, email. You're like, man, I really hope they get the point of that. They never do, do they? Actually, today, in, in fact, I'm, I give you full permission to, to, to say that. Man, I hope so-and-so gets this message today. 
I hope my spouse hears this so they, they start praying for me because I need it. I hope my friend a couple aisles back hears this. Cause, man, I hope he prays that I see the power of Christ this week. So I give you permission right now to hope that somebody else is hearing this message and applies it and they pray for you, that your eyes might be opened. And they're also hoping that you're going to hear it and you're going to purpose in your heart. You know, here's, here's some people in my life. I want to pray that their eyes are opened to the power of Christ this week, that this week they will find one thing and one thing alone, Christ faithful. The application here today is not to do something to different, different, I should say. The application here is to pray. In humility to say there's nothing we can do. We have to pray for each other, otherwise we're sunk. We need this desperately if we're going to taste and see that the Lord is good. And this reminds me of the psalmist. I'm going to close with this psalm, Psalm 27, verses 13 and 14. Here's what it says. I believe that I will look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. What's he saying? I'm going to see God good before I die. This isn't just a heaven thing. I believe I'm going to see that God is good before I die. I believe I will look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong. Let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. Paul says we won't have to wait for it. We just simply need to pray for it, that our eyes might be opened.